This programme was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, your community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Good afternoon and welcome to Starry Nights. Starry Nights is a program about astronomy, what there is to see in the night sky, and how it may have got there. We'll explore some of the myths and legends surrounding objects in the night sky, and we'll examine some of the technologies that are helping us to unravel some of the mysteries of the universe. My name is Gary Sparks. I'm the director of the Holt Planetarium in Napier, the sponsor of Starry Nights. Jupiter is the evening star, appearing in the northwest soon after sunset. It sets after midnight at the beginning of the month and by around 11 p.m. at the end. The moon will be near Jupiter on the 15th. The Earth is currently moving to the far side of the sun from Jupiter, hence its slow fall night after night. It is 780 million kilometers away mid-month. Sirius and Canopus are the brightest true stars. Sirius, Takarua, the brightest of all the stars, is north of overhead. Canopus, Autahi, the second brightest star, is a bit south of overhead. Both stars are whitish in colour. Sirius, the dog star, marks the head of Canis Major, the big dog. Sirius is 8.6 light years away and 30 times brighter than the sun. A group of stars above and right of it make the dog's hindquarters and tail, upside down from our southern hemisphere perspective. Procyon, in the northeast below Sirius, marks the smaller of the two dogs that follow Orion the Hunter across the sky. I must admit that the smaller dog is very difficult to make out the shape of a dog. Below and left of Sirius are bluish Rigel and orange Betelgeuse, the brightest stars in Orion. Between them is a line of three stars, Orion's belt. To to European Southern Hemisphere star watchers, the line of three makes the bottom of the pot, or the iron pot. The handle of the pot is Orion's sword, a faint line of stars above the bright three. At its centre is the Orion Nebula, a glowing gas cloud 1,300 light-years away, visible in binoculars. Orion's belt points down and left to the orange star Aldebaran. Continuing the line finds the Pleiades, or Matariki star cluster. Aldebaran makes one eye of Taurus the Bull, one of the zodiac constellations. It is on the tip, it's on one tip of an upside down V of stars that makes the face of Taurus. These constellation pictures were thought up by northern hemisphere cultures, uh, so most appear upside down to us. The V-shaped group is called the Hyades Cluster. It is about 130 light years away. Aldebaran is not a member of the cluster, but merely on the line of sight, 65 light years from Earth. It is a red giant star, 145 times brighter than the sun. The Pleiades, or Matariki star cluster, is also known as the Seven Sisters and Subaru, amongst many names. The cluster is 440 light years from us. From northern New Zealand, the bright star Capella is on the northern skyline. It is 90,000 times brighter than the sun and 3,300 light years away. Crux, the Southern Cross, is in the southeast. Below it are Beta and Alpha Centauri, the pointers. Alpha Centauri is the closest naked eye star, 4.3 light years away. Beta Centauri, although it appears similar in brightness, is actually a blue giant star hundreds of light years away, as are most of the stars in Crux. Canopus is also a very luminous distant star, 13,000 times brighter than the sun and about 300 light years away. 
The Milky Way is brightest in the southeast toward Crux. It can be traced up the sky, fading where it is nearly overhead. It becomes very faint east or to the right of Orion. The Milky Way is our edgewise view of the galaxy, the pancake of billions of stars, of which the Sun is just one. The clouds of Magellan, the LMC and SMC, are high in the southern sky, easily seen by eye on a dark moonless night. They are two small galaxies about 160,000 and 200,000 light years away. Hard to imagine when you're looking at that, that the light that you see left there 160,000 years ago. Three planets are in the dawn sky, all low in the east. Venus is the brilliant morning star, rising around 5 a.m. Its rising time gets later through the month, but stays two hours ahead of sunrise. Venus is leaving us behind and moving to the other side of the sun. At the beginning of the month, Mercury is below and right of Venus. It looks like a bright star, but much fainter than Venus. Between Venus and Mercury is Mars, fainter again and reddish-colored. Mercury soon slips down into the dawn twilight as it leaves us behind. We are catching up on Mars, so it moves higher in the dawn, closing the gap with Venus. On the 22nd, Mars will be just to the right of Venus. After that, it appears above Venus. The moon will be near Venus on the 8th and above Mercury on the 9th. So for your early morning risers, there's some planetary treats in store for you. Some exoplanets seem to be losing their atmospheres and shrinking. In a new study using NASA's retired Kepler Space Telescope, astronomers find evidence, found evidence of a possible cause. The cores of these planets are pushing away their atmospheres from the inside out. Exoplanets, that is planets outside our solar system, come in a variety of sizes from small rocky planets to colossal gas giants. <coughs> Pardon me. In the middle lie rocky super-Earths and larger sub-Neptunes with puffy atmospheres. But there's a conspicuous absence, a size gap, of planets that fall between 1.5 to 2 times the size of Earth, or in between super-Earths and sub-Neptunes, the scientists have been working to better understand. Scientists have now confirmed the detection of over 5,000 exoplanets, but there are fewer planets than expected with a diameter between 1.5 and 2 times that of Earth, said Caltech IPAC research scientist Jesse Christensen, science lead for the NASA Exoplanet Archive and lead author of the new study. Exoplanet scientists have enough data now to say that this gap is not a fluke. There's something going on that impedes planets from reaching and or staying at this size. Researchers think that this gap could be explained by certain sub-Neptunes losing their atmospheres over time. This loss would happen if the planet doesn't have enough mass, and therefore gravitational force, to hold on to its atmosphere. So sub-Neptunes that aren't massive enough would shrink to about the size of super-Earths, leaving the gap between the two sizes of planets. But exactly how these planets are losing their atmospheres has remained a mystery. Scientists have settled on two likely mechanisms. One is called core-powered mass loss, and the other photoevaporation. The study has uncovered new evidence supporting the first. Core-powered mass loss occurs when radiation emitted from a planet's hot core pushes the atmosphere away from the planet over time. And that radiation is pushing on the atmosphere from underneath, Christensen said. The other leading explanation for the planetary gap, photoevaporation, happens when a planet's atmosphere is essentially blown away by the hot radiation of its host star. In this scenario, the high-energy radiation from the star is acting like a hairdryer on an ice cube, she said. While photoevaporation is thought to occur during a planet's first 100 million years, 
Core-powered mass loss is thought to happen much later, closer to one billion years into a planet's life. But with either mechanism, if you don't have enough mass, you can't hold on and you lose your atmosphere and shrink down, Christensen added. For this study, Christensen and her co-authors used data from NASA's K2, an extended mission of the Kepler Space Telescope, to look at the star clusters Preasip and the Hyades, which are almost 600 million to 800 million years old. Because planets are generally thought to be the same age as their host star, the sub-Neptunes in this system would be past the age where photoevaporation could have taken place, but not old enough to have experienced core-powered mass loss. So if the team saw that there were a lot of sub-Neptunes in Preasip and the Hyades, as compared to older stars in other clusters, they could conclude that photoevaporation hadn't taken place. In that case, core-powered mass loss would be the most likely explanation of what happens to less massive sub-Neptunes over time. In observing Preasip and Hyades, the researchers found that nearly 100% of stars in these clusters still have a sub-Neptune planet or planet candidate in their orbit. Judging from the size of these planets, the researchers think they have retained their atmospheres. This differs from the old, other older stars observed by K2, that is, stars more than 800 million years old, only 25% of which have orbiting sub-Neptunes. The older age of these stars is closer to the time frame in which core-powered mass loss is thought to take place. From these observations, the team concluded that photoevaporation could not have taken place in the Preasip and the Hyades. If it had, it would have occurred hundreds of millions of years earlier, and these planets would have little, if any, atmosphere left. This leaves core-powered mass loss as the leading explanation for what likely happens to the atmospheres of these planets. Christensen's team spent more than five years building the planet candidate catalog necessary for the study. But the research is far from complete, she said, and it is possible that the current understanding of photoevaporation and or core-powered mass loss could evolve. The findings will likely be put to the test by future studies before anyone can declare the mystery of this planetary gap solved once and for all. You're listening to Radio Hawks Bay, your community access radio station, broadcasting on 104.7 FM and 1431 AM. This program is Starry Nights. A team of astronomers has used the James Webb Space Telescope, the JWST, to discover the most distant and oldest black hole ever seen as it feasts upon its host galaxy. The discovery could be a massive step forward in understanding how supermassive black holes reached masses equivalent to millions of billions of times that of the Sun in the very early epochs of the universe. The black hole dwells in the ancient galaxy GNZ11, which is 13.4 billion light-years away, and is thus seen as it was just 400 million years after the Big Bang. The black hole itself is, is around 6 million times as massive as the Sun, and seems to be feeding on matter from its surrounding galaxy five times more rapidly than the limit suggested is sustainable by current theories. University of Cambridge Department of Physics and team leader Roberto Maiolino described the discovery as a giant leap forward for black hole science. It's very early in the universe to see a black hole this massive, so we've got to consider other ways they might form, Maiolino said in the statement. Very early galaxies were extremely gas-rich, so they would have been like a buffet for black holes. The size of early supermassive black holes that formed when the universe was less than one billion years old is a problem for formation theories, because reaching a mass of millions or billions of times that of the sun should take billions of years of constant feeding. 
It's like seeing a family walking down the street, and they have two six-foot teenagers, but they also have with them a six-foot-tall toddler, said Maynooth University research fellow John Regan. That's a bit of a problem. How did the toddler get so tall? And it's the same for supermassive black holes in the universe. How did they get so massive so quickly? Scientists currently have two main routes that black holes could take to reach supermassive status in the early universe. They could start out as small black hole seeds that are created when massive stars collapse at the end of their lives and after millions or billions of years, or they could skip this stage entirely. (coughs) Pardon me. (coughs) Pardon me. This could possibly occur if vast clouds of cold gas and dust collapse to immediately form a heavy black hole seed with a mass a few million times that of the sun. That way, the process gets to fast forward through millions or billions of years of stellar evolution, getting a head start on the feeding and merger processes that help black hole seeds grow to supermassive black holes. The discovery of this new ancient black hole, with a mass a few million times that of the sun, favors that heavy seed theory. Yet, on the flip side of this, the rate at which the black hole in GNZ11 is accreting matter could suggest that black holes may be capable of feeding much faster than other black holes discovered in the early universe have been observed to do so. This would be a leg up for small black hole, for small black hole seed theories. A mathematical formula known as the Eddington Limit marks how fast a body, like a star, can accumulate mass without the radiation it emits, its luminosity, pushing that mass away and thus cutting off that food supply. While black holes don't emit light because they're bounded by a light-trapping boundary called an event horizon, their massive gravitational influence does cause the material that swirls around them to be violently churned and heated, emitting radiation in the process. The more rapidly a black hole feeds, the more intense the light from that region, called an active galactic nucleus, an AGN. Thus, the Eddington limit applies to this region, and it can similarly act to push material away and cut off a black hole's feeding frenzy. This newly discovered black hole is accreting matter from its host galaxy at a rate five times higher than the Eddington limit. Periods of so-called super-Eddington accretion can occur but do so in limited bouts. The team estimated that if this period of voracious feeding for this black hole had been proceeding for 100 million years, it might not have had to start life as a heavy black hole seed. It could have formed from a much lighter stellar mass black hole seed between around 250 million and 370 million years after the Big Bang and rapidly grown to the mass it is as the JWST observes it 13.4 million years ago billion years ago. One thing the team is fairly certain of is the intense feeding of this black hole is responsible for GNZ11 itself, which is around 100 times smaller than the Milky Way and highly luminous. But the gluttonous black hole is also likely to stunt the growth of its host galaxy. Ultra-fast winds of particles belched out from around the feeding black hole are likely to be pushing away gas and dust from the galaxy's heart. Cold clouds of gas and dust collapse to birth stars. So this means that the black hole is grinding stellar birth to a halt, in the process killing the growth of this small galaxy. As well as learning more about this black hole and its galaxy, the team behind this research believes that the power of the JWST should help uncover more black holes in the early universe. In particular, they are aiming to discover small black hole seeds in the infancy of the cosmos and put to bed the debate surrounding the premature growth of supermassive black holes.
It's a new era. The giant leap in sensitivity, especially in the infrared, is like upgrading from Galileo's telescope to a modern telescope overnight, Maialino concluded. Before the JWST came online, I thought maybe the universe isn't so interesting when you, when you go beyond what we could see with the Hubble Space Telescope. But that hasn't been the case at all. The universe has been quite generous in what it's showing us, and this is just the beginning. Well, we're just going to take a break here for a moment to mention our sponsor, the Holt Planetarium. The Hawke's Bay Holt Planetarium is located on Chambers Street in Napier, on the grounds of Napier Boys High School. We're open to the public every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Main show starts at about 7.15, runs till about 8.30 or so. No bookings are required, so if you'd like to learn more about astronomy, have some questions to ask, you've been given a telescope by uh, an auntie or an uncle, and you're not sure how to use it, any questions you might have about anything like that, come on down to the planetarium on a Sunday evening, and we'll do our best to help you out. The planetarium recreates an image of the night sky, so it's always nice and clear under the planetarium's dome, regardless of the outside weather. Schools and other groups can also book the planetarium, so if you're looking for a new and different science experience, why not give us a try? You can visit our website, www.holtplanetarium.org.nz, or give us a call on 8344-345, 8344-345. We're also going to be running special Art Deco shows during Art Deco weekend, so if you're interested in one of those, by all means, give us a call. The early universe, according to the standard model of cosmology, ought to be a fairly homogeneous place, where little structure with little structure or arrangement. In 2021, however, astronomers discovered a large pattern of galaxies forming a giant arc 3.3 billion light years across. Now, a second large-scale pattern has emerged. This time, it's an enormous circle of galaxies nicknamed the Big Ring. Together, the giant arc and the big ring present a challenge to the standard model and may send cosmologists back to the drawing board. The big ring and giant arc are the same distance from us, near the constellation of Bootes, the herdsman, meaning they existed at the same cosmic time when the universe was only half of its present age. They are also in the same region of sky, at only 12 degrees apart when observing the night sky, says Alexia Lopez, a PhD student at the University of Central Lancashire, who discovered both structures alongside supervisor Roger Klaus and collaborator Gerard Williger. Identifying two extraordinary ultra-large structures in such close configuration raises the possibility that together they form an even more extraordinary cosmological system. The Big Ring and the Giant Arc are made up of galaxies that are so dim and so faint they wouldn't normally be visible. However, distant quasars, bright point sources caused by active black holes at the hearts of galaxies, shine light through the dim galaxies where matter absorbs some of the light. In particular, Lopez and her colleagues were looking for evidence of dim galaxies blocking a magnesium ion called Mg2. They found it in data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, giving them both the position and distance of the otherwise invisible galaxies. This enabled Lopez to map the galaxies in three dimensions, and doing so revealed the giant arc and big ring 9.2 billion years away. (coughs) Pardon me. At that point in the universe's history, according to the standard model, any structure that exists shouldn't be larger than 1.2 billion light years across. 
Yet both the ark and the ring far exceed that, and they don't seem to be coincidental. We did some statistics and found that the big ring has a significance of 5.2 sigma. This is exceeding the five sigma golden threshold, says Lopez, referring to the usual level of significance scientists require of themselves to confirm a discovery. One possible explanation for large structures like these is called baryonic acoustic oscillation, BAO. In the earliest moments of the universe, sound and pressure waves shaped by gravitational interactions could form bubbles of matter across large scales. BAO is allowed by the standard model of cosmology, however it tends to create spherical structures, whereas the big ring is two-dimensional. So a different explanation is necessary. At a press conference at the recent American Astronomical Society annual meeting, Lopez alluded to two possible alternative explanations. The first is that the structures might be evidence for cosmic strings, one-dimensional topological defects proposed in the 1970s as part of string theory. Cosmic strings could theoretically have been created in the early universe and would have left their mark on the structure of matter. The Big Ring and the Giant Arc might also be explained by an entirely different model of cosmology, such as the Conformal Cyclic Cosmology, the CCC model, proposed by physicist Roger Penrose. In this model, the universe goes through endless cycles of Big Bang after Big Bang. In CCC, there is no need for the universe to collapse back together in a big crunch, but rather it expands indefinitely, and all matter decays until mathematically the difference between the empty expanded universe and a Big Bang singularity is just a question of scale. And when there is no matter, as at the end of the universe and at the beginning, scale is irrelevant. An expanded empty universe can become the next singularity, restarting the cycle. Importantly, CCC would leave behind evidence of the previous cycle, what Penrose calls an aeon, in the new aeon. In other words, it would create structures the size of the big ring and the giant arc. These are captivating theories. However, so far, no alternative model of the universe, not even CCC, has been able to supplant the standard model of cosmology for its sheer explanatory power to describe what we observe in the universe around us. But the standard model does have a growing number of cracks and gaps, hinting that it might one day be improved or supplanted. The giant arc and the big ring together represent one such crack, a place where what we know about the physics of the universe fails to explain what we observe. It is, at the least, a reason to keep looking. Over the years, scientists have managed to unveil the existence of quite a few intriguing particles, pushing the entire field of physics forward with each discovery. There's the God particle, for instance, a.k.a. the Higgs boson, that grants all other particles their masses. <coughs> Pardon me. There's also the so-called Oh My God particle, an unimaginably energetic cosmic ray. But now we have a new particle in town. It's named the Sun Goddess particle and is fittingly extraordinary. This particle has an energy level one million times greater than what can be generated in even humanity's most powerful particle accelerators. It appears to have fallen to Earth in a shower of other less energetic particles. Like the Oh My God particle, these bits come from faraway regions of space and are known as cosmic rays. The particle has been, does, has been dubbed Amaterasu, after Amaterasu Omikami, the goddess of the sun and the universe in Japanese mythology, whose name means shining in heaven. 
And just as its mythological namesake is shrouded in mystery, so too is the Amaterasu particle. Its discoverers, including Osaka Metropolitan University researchers Toshihiro Fuji, don't know where the particle came from, or indeed what it is. They also still aren't sure what kind, what kind of violent and powerful process could have given rise to something as energetic as Amaterasu. This is the most energetic charged particle ever detected by the telescope array experiment, Fuji told Space.com. The hope is that just as Amaterasu is credited with the creation of Japan, according to the Shinto tradition, the Amaterasu particle can help create an entirely new branch of high-energy astrophysics. High-energy cosmic rays are extremely rare to begin with, but Fuji said the Amaterasu particle has an energy level not seen in a staggering 30 years of cosmic ray detections. In fact, when the researchers spotted Amaterasu with the telescope array experiment involving 507 detectors spread across 699 square kilometers of the high desert of Millard County, Utah, they initially thought the detection must be some kind of mistake. I thought it would be my mistake or bug, and then after checking the details of the event, I was excited to find it was not an error, Fuji said. First spotted by the telescope array experiment in 2021, the Amaterasu particle exists an energy of 224 exa-electron volts, EEV. For context, for context, 1 EEV is equivalent to 10 to the power of 18 electron volts. This puts Amaterasu in a similar energy level to the most energetic comic cosmic ray ever discovered. That's the Oh My God particle, which was detected in 1991 by the Fly's Eye camera in Dugaway Proving Ground, Utah. The latter had an energy of 320 electron volts. Needless to say, the scientists were pretty excited. Uh, Fuji concluded, I am personally excited to have found a new mystery in science to solve. And isn't that what science is all about? Finding new things and new mysteries to solve. Right, that's going to do it for our program this month. My name is Gary Sparks, and thanks once again for listening to Starry Nights. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, your community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.